0: listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. It's so good to see y'all here. It's a uh probably been a challenging and exciting week for you like it has been for me. I had a funeral in the middle of the week and then um, a wedding yesterday and all of that time working on preparing a message that deals with 45 verses from Daniel chapter 11. And it's one of the uh, largest, clearest prophecies in all of the Old Testament. And at the same time, Daniel wrote it seven, uh, several hundred years before it occurred And so we get a chance to look at it from Daniel's perspective this morning, but we also get a chance to look back on it and see uh, history fulfilled. So um, this morning, Daniel chapter 11. Last week, we looked at Daniel chapter 10, and we said that Daniel 10, 11, and 12 12 are all just one connected vision. Last week in uh, chapter 10, we set the context for the vision This morning in chapter 11, we're going to look at the content of the vision, and then next week in Daniel 12, we'll look at the conclusion of this vision. Um, This chapter 11, the details are so precise that many have concluded that Daniel chapter 11 was written after these events occurred. But I'm here to tell you that these things were not written after these events occurred. They were written prophetically. A sovereign God led Daniel, his man, to write these things several hundred years before they actually occurred. To give it context before we read these 45 verses together this morning, most of what happens in Daniel chapter 11 that Daniel prophesies is looking forward to the intertestamental period after Malachi has finished his writing and there are 400 years of silence between Malachi and the book of Matthew. Many of these things that we're going to look at and try to explain explain briefly from Daniel chapter 11 occurred during that time period in human history. So um, fasten your seatbelts. I'm going to read quickly and we're going to look at Daniel Chapter 11. As we read, I want you to think about this. One writer said this. He said, Daniel 11 shows us the fallen world pursuing the wind and finding it elusive. Daniel chapter 11 is the story of us chasing power. Chasing what the world has to offer. Believing the lies of the world. And we're going to see the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the power is constantly going to be shifting back and forth. This nation rises up. This nation falls. This nation rises up. This nation falls. And that's, that's the hamster wheel that history finds itself on because it will never settle on who the true king of all things really is. And that's, that's our lives. Our lives go up and they go down. It's like a yo-yo. Our lives, we're we're winning and we're losing. We're struggling and we're succeeding. And when we're succeeding, everything's good. And when things are bad, God's not as good as we thought he was. And so we're, we're in that struggle constantly in life. And we're going to see that as we look at human history there. Daniel 11 shows us the fallen world pursuing the wind and finding it elusive. You were not created to follow anything that this world has to offer. You were not created to find your satisfaction in anything that this world has to offer. You and I were created to find our satisfaction in Christ and Christ alone. And we've been looking for it ever since we left the garden. And we can find it in Christ, in Christ alone. And so I would encourage you as we look at the text to see yourself in it because we find our identity in everything. We find our value in everything. We look for love in everything that we were not created for. In fact, I thought about this song, and I pulled it up, and I listened to it. Some of you know it, looking for love in all the wrong places, right? And that's what we're doing. That's the history of humanity. We're looking for love in all the wrong places. Daniel chapter 11, verse 1. As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. A statement regarding the sovereignty of God, over all of the nations and leaders and rulers that rise to prominence, right? Chapter, or chapter 11, verse 2. Now, I will show you the truth. Behold, here's Daniel looking at the content of this vision that's being given to him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold... Three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up against thy kingdom, the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity nor according to the authority which he has ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up, and go to others beside these. He's talking about none other than Alexander the Great, who died at 33, whose children were killed, and his posterity, his children, did not rule after him. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he, and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years, they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north, And to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm. And he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up. And her attendants, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. Again, those are connected to individuals in history. um, And you can study that. We're not going to get into all all of the weeds this morning. We don't have time to do that. And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. Verse 10, his son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces which shall keep coming and overflow the pass through and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south moved with rage shall come out and fight against the king of the north. He shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted and he'll cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall rise shall again rise a multitude greater than the first and after some years he shall come on with a great army and attendant supplies. Verse 14, in those days many shall rise against the king of the south and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city and the forces of the south shall not stand or even his best troops for There shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, and it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face To the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger or in battle. That's the first section. Move on to section 2, verse 21. In this place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers had done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods, but shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against them. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. Sounds like contemporary politicians, for the end is yet to be at the at the time appointed. The, clear to understand that. They're talking about things that have happened already historically. He's not talking about things at the end. So And he shall return to his land, verse twenty eight, and with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant and he shall work his will and return to his own land at the time appointed he shall return and come into the south but it shall not be this time as it was before for ships of kittim shall come against him and he shall be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant he shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress. And and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble, so they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Verse 36 is the third section that we'll look at today. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. God and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. Again, we see the, the sovereign decree of Almighty God. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall, pay, he shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses and with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. Verse 40, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. But the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall. But these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab, and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of treasures of gold and silver, and all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, Mount Zion, and he shall come to his end with none to help him. Three things we'll see in these 45 verses, and I'll try to uh, cover them um, succinctly and encourage you to look at um, Daniel 11, compare it to human history. It, uh, it, it fits like, um, just like a, a tongue and groove that you don't know what tongue and groove is. It's like a hand in glove. Um, so, Anyway, um, first of all, we see the futility and depravity of human history, verses 2 to 20. But I want to take in verse number 1, and in verse number 1, we see the the sovereign hand of God over the best and worst of human history. The sovereign hand of God over the best and worst of human history. That's what he's telling us here in chapter 11 and verse number 1. The power behind the powers that exist in the world rise and fall according to the will and purpose of God. Human power historically has been temporary and destructive. We know that power corrupts. It always has and it always will. But make note of this. We need to make note of this today. And I say make note of this because, quite frankly, I've had to stand before two different crowds this week and one crowd had a mother who was 76 that died and i knew very few people in the crowd and i had the privilege of proclaiming the gospel but but here's here's the kicker if you don't believe the gospel you're in trouble it's it's not just a, a casual, okay, that's what you believe, preacher, and I, I choose not to believe that. And I, the difficulty in preaching a funeral is I can't read people's minds. I don't know them, but most of them look like they're angry because someone that they love has just died, and they don't know how to process it. They don't know how to deal with it. I stood before them, and I said, I hate death. I do. I hate it every time it happens. I hate it. It's fresh every time. And so to stand up in front of people and talk about someone who has passed and try to bring comfort to them and try to bring truth to them is, is challenging and you're fighting a, a battle. But understand there are these two power sources that are operative in the world. There is this power of evil, but there is this power of God. And if you say, I don't believe in God and I don't believe his word and I don't believe the truth of the scriptures and I don't believe in Jesus, you're in trouble today that's the tragedy of standing before folks that are looking at an urn that holds the ashes of somebody that they loved, that has died, that has faced death, that didn't have the power to overcome death. And he is the one that we should fear, not only to take our life, but to take our soul and us be condemned uh, to separation from him in hell forever and forever and forever because of our rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not just a think tank that you've come to this morning where we're sharing different ideas, and our ideas are one idea of many ideas. We see through the wickedness in the world and all the patterns of evil in the world that there's definitely something wrong. Nobody can point us back to Genesis 3, but Scripture can, and nobody can point us to the one who will bruise the head, who will crush the head of the serpent and have his heel bruised, none other than Jesus Christ. And so I'm pointing you to him this morning, but I'm also saying that there is a power that we can be sucked into in this world that we read about here in this text that I'll get into a little bit of the details here in a moment. But human power historically has always been temporary and destructive. And as you're sucked into human power, as many of us are, and we love the way that makes us feel, please understand that human power is temporary And it corrupts our soul. But God's power is forever and God's power is productive and his truth is marching on. And I would beg you this morning to turn to him. This text is telling us that the hand of God is above the arrogance and the power and the importance and the indecency and the lunacy and the ultimate powerlessness of godless humanity. And that is the majority of the world. What do we see in the text? In verses 2 to 4, we see the rise of Medo-Persia and Greece. That's that's clear looking at and attaching these things to history. That's the miracle of this divine revelation, which is prophetic. In Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, we see Babylon, we see uh, Medo-Persia, we see Greece, and we see Rome. In Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 8, we see Medo-Persia and Greece, these two kingdoms. And in these verses here, verses 2 to 4, he's dealing with these two kingdoms and two prominent figures. You can look them up on Wikipedia, Xerxes and Alexander the Great and read about them. The second thing we see in verses 5 to 20 is the rise of Egypt and Syria. The rise of Egypt and Syria, verses 5 to 20. And he keeps referring to the north and the south. The, uh, the, the south would be the Ptolemies of Egypt. And there's Ptolemy 1 through 4, and they ruled in, from 323 to 145 B.C. And then there are the Seleucids of Syria that are uh, geographically in the north. And you see Seleucid 1 through 4, and you see Antiochus 1 through 4, these rulers. And the years of their dynasties would be 312 to 163. You say, why in the world would Daniel want to give us this history lesson and have us to look at uh, um, Medo-Persia and Greece, look at Xerxes and Alexander the Great, and look at all of these Ptolemies, and look at all of these Seleucids, and look at all of these different descendants of, of Antiochus, and all the one, twos, the threes, and the fours. What, what, what Daniel wants us to see, and what Daniel wants his people to see, and what the angel wants them to see, or if it's Jesus communicating it, the intention of all of it is is in this, Israel is stuck in the middle. In other words, you've got the north and the south, and you've got these two kingdoms fighting it out, and they're, they're, they're moving from the north to the south. They're passing through the Holy Land, sometimes capturing the Holy Land, ruling over the Holy Land, dominating the Holy Land, but there's not a focus on Israel. Israel, in these verses, is not in the crosshairs. But life is going to be difficult for them. That's what Daniel's already learned in chapter 10, and the difficulty is they're, they're going to be stuck in, in the middle. Again, I thought about that song. I think it's clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, stuck in the middle with you. And they're stuck in the middle. That's what he's telling us. To, to God's people, you are going to be stuck in the middle of these world empires that are going to come on the scene of history in this little nation that has been through so much, and it feels like it's about to be wiped off the face of the planet. The Jews constantly. Anti-Semitism is a part of the story of human history. From Genesis 3 all the way through, you come to Genesis 12. You look at all the different things that happen once they're established as a nation. You look at the captivity that they go into. The significance of of the kingdoms of the north and the kingdoms of the south and Israel being stuck in the, the middle is that they are the people of God. They are the only people on the planet with prophets that speak for God. They are the people of blessing. They are the people that God walks with and works through and talks to. They are the people of the book. And in fact, in this time period, the Septuagint was translated. That is, uh, they took the Hebrew scriptures and they transla- They took 72 uh, Jewish scholars um, from the 12 tribes and they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. That's happening while all of this historical activity is, is going on. And so these are the the people of God and they are in this constant process of looking at the world pretty much trample over them as wars go on. One writer said that the tide of human history goes in and out and produces nothing. And that's what we see in these these verses, verses 5 to 20. The tide of human history goes in and out and in and out. And we right now are um, in some phase, some tide of human history. And uh, this nation that we live in has come in, and I hate to say it, but it's probably going to go out. I I know that we sometimes connect things and disconnect things and read things into things, but we're worried about China, we're worried about Russia, we're worried about Iran, we're worried about all these nations around the world and all that's happening politically. And quite frankly, these are simply tides that are going in and they're going out, and we may get caught up in the middle of it, we may get ground up in the middle of it, we may face persecution. In the middle of it. But we need to understand that we are all a part of the futility and depravity of human history. That's what's happening around us. Another writer said the balance of earthly politics may shift. But it never comes to permanent rest. And I've been around for 64 years and I know that. And you do too. So Israel is in the middle of this political ping pong 175 years until Antiochus IV, who is called Epiphanes, comes on the scene. That is Israel in the middle. Secondly, secondly, we see in verses 21 to 35, the intensity and insanity that purifies the people of God. Israel goes from being in the middle. The north and the south, they're, they're, just, they're moving back and forth. This guy's in power, this guy's out of power. This guy's in power, this guy's out of power. Israel's in the middle. They're passing through the Holy Land. Sometimes they take over the Holy Land. Sometimes they take over God's people. But now we're moving to where Israel is in the crosshairs. And they're going to be in the crosshairs of this guy as, they, as, the, as the lens is being kind of tightened up. We, we see this historical figure, Antiochus IV, who is called Epiphanes. Antiochus the fourth historical figure you can look him up again on wikipedia and just giving you an overview of that we see the intensity and insanity that purifies the people of God verses 21 to 35 we've already read them we're going from Israel Israel stuck in the middle to Israel being in the crosshairs Israel having the scope they're the target and Antiochus is aiming We read in the text of Scripture that Antiochus is contemptible. He is despised. To the Jews, he is a monster. He is an anti-Semite. He is a deceiver. He is cunning. He is convincing. He is politically skilled. He is manipulative. He is deceptive. He is an alliance maker and breaker. He will sit down to make an alliance and lie his way all the way through it. And Antiochus used every available resource and and device at his disposal to obliterate the people of God. I would just warn you to be very careful when you hear people hating on the Jewish people. It's happened throughout history. They have been, um, many would say, the most despised and maligned segment of people in, in all of human history. And, and so this is what Antiochus is doing, and this is what has happened throughout history. And we could mention some of the leaders' names who, um, who persecuted the Jewish people. We know that Antiochus worshipped Zeus. That's important because we're going to move um, once we get to verse 36. We see someone that many would say is Antiochus, but Antiochus worshipped, Antiochus the fourth worshipped Zeus, but there's coming a leader in the future who will worship himself, who will say that he is the king. We'll get to that in a second. Um, so, So anyway, we see this perverted power, the destruction of the Jewish people. We see that throughout history. Again, we see it in Genesis 3, we see it in Genesis 4, we see it in Genesis 11, we see it in Genesis 16 where Abraham and and Sarah decide, hey, um, we're going to take things into our own hands and Ishmael comes on to the scene before God makes good on his promise. God always makes good on his promises. We see them go into Egyptian slavery. We see them go into Assyrian captivity and Babylonian captivity and human history has been the history of anti-Semitism. So there's perverted power, verses 21 to 28, but then there's persecution, verses 29 to 36. What we understand is that Antiochus was in Egypt negotiating, and verses 27 would tell us that he's negotiating this, this treaty, and in verse 29, he returns to the Holy Land. And we know in 169 B.C. that there was a Jewish insurrection in Progress And when Antiochus returned back from Egypt, he completely stamped out that insurrection, killing 80,000 of the Jews, men, women, and children, looting the temple and persecuting the, the Jews. Um, and so we see the text bearing that out. And then in 167 BC, we're going backwards BC, right? 169 to 167, that's moving us toward um, um, Zero, which then is going to start moving the numbers forward on the calendar. And in 166 to 164, we see the Maccabean re- re- revolt. Um, and the, the Maccabean re- revolt was significant uh, because we're, we're going to see that played out here in portions of the text. There was a man named uh, Mattathias, and he was a priest, and he had five sons, and they revolted against Antiochus. Again, the years were 166 to 164. Um, The word Maccabeus means hammer, and in the Maccabean Revolt, there were thousands upon thousands that died, but in the Maccabean Revolt, there was victory for the Jewish people for a time. We know that in 164, Antiochus IV died, but we also know, and many of you are familiar with Hanukkah, Hanukkah, the date of Hanukkah is December the 14th, and it goes back to December the 14th, 164 B.C., with this victory of the Maccabeans um, in the holy land. So that's section two, the intensity and insanity that purifies the people of God. But then we come to section three, and I believe that it is yet future. But let me just, let me just read an excerpt from, um, from this little... Commentary on the book of Daniel by none other than um, Danny Aiken, or better known to some as Uncle Danny. He's, he cites an article by Lifeway Research. And, and so because, because again, I, I just want to encourage you not to, not to get tense if you have a different view than I do. Um, you're in, listen, if you love Jesus and you love God's word and you believe the gospel, and you have a view of eschatology, there's a good chance that there are some good people that hold that same view that you do, even though it's a different view than mine and probably wrong. Are y'all here with me this morning? Um, I, I, hold, I hold these things loosely, and we'll, we'll find it out one day. But listen, listen to what, um, as, as, uh, as Dr. Aiken quotes this article. He said, um, past, past, it's, a, it's an article, Pastors, the End of the Age is Complicated. It was reported that most Protestant pastors believe Jesus will return in the future, but few agree about the details of the apocalypse. A third of America's Protestant pastors expect Christians to be raptured or taken up into the sky to meet Jesus as the end times begin. About half think a false messiah known as the Antichrist will appear Sometime in the future. A surprising number think the Antichrist has already been here or isn't on his way at all. About half, 49%, say the Antichrist is a figure who will rise in the future. Others say there is no individual Antichrist, 12%. That that he is a personification of evil, 14%, or an institution, 7%. 6% say the Antichrist has already been here. Baptists, 75%, and Pentecostals, 83%. Are most likely to see a future Antichrist. Lutherans, 29%, Methodists, 28%, and Presbyterian slash Reformed pastors, 31%, are more likely to see the Antichrist as a personification of evil. So, um, you know, I, what we tend to do in the church, what we tend to do in the church, and it's a tragedy, what we tend to do in the church is we think if people disagree with us, we, we, we attach it to two things. We attach it to in, intelligence or we attach it to spirituality. And I would encourage you to resist that. Because if you attach someone's view that is different from yours to their lack of intelligence or their lack of spirituality, you may have overestimated your own intelligence and spirituality. It's it's a dangerous place to be to say that maybe we disagree because I'm wrong. Maybe we disagree because I'm wrong. Do you know that you can love Jesus with all your heart and you can be the smartest guy in the room and you can be the most spiritual guy in the room? And guess what? Or woman. And guess what? You just might be wrong. You just might be wrong. So uh, don't let these things put us in a place where we're looking down our noses at people who disagree with us because we question their intellectual capacity. And that's what a lot of people do. And here's what a lot of people do. They're like, now what do smart people believe, right? I mean, what kind of, what kind of unintelligent person would believe in a literal six-day creation. All the smart people have a different view of how we got here. Right? That's what the smart people believe. This is what the smart people believe. This is what the spiritual people believe. I I would just encourage you um, as we look at this text, uh, to consider some differences. I think there's some clear differences between this, this final act of human history and this, this place where Israel was focused on by Antioch's epiphany. So we see, number three, the, final, the finality of human history and the victory of Christ and his kingdom, verses 36 to 45. First of all, I believe we see the Antichrist. In verses 36 to 39, he will exalt and deify himself. He does as he wills. No one can stand up to stop him. And he speaks against God. He has unbridled power. And in chapter 11, verses 42 to 43, and in Revelation chapter 13, he is literally ruling the world. We see the east versus the north in verses 44 as we come to the end of the chapter, and we see this mountain and we see Mount Zion, and we see this final war that will be fought in israel and then, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter two and verse eight and Revelation chapter nineteen verses eleven to twenty one this man, this Antichrist, that could be described here in verses thirty six or, or um, excuse me um, thirty six to forty five um, it could very well be telling us that he will come to an end. He said, "Yet he shall come to an end with none to help him." And so, there's a, a brief overview of Daniel chapter eleven. I think the the, the two things that I, I want to encourage you to do before I give you some some points of of application. The first thing I want to encourage you to do is is go home and study Daniel chapter eleven, and uh, get you a good a couple of good commentaries that have differing viewpoints. Um, I, I'm, I'm working out of four that have differing viewpoints. Some, some have a, a Baptist perspective like um, Dr. Aiken and some have a Presbyterian perspective like uh, Dale Ralph Davis. Um, there are other commentaries that I'm using and then researching everything that I can of people that I trust on the internet. I, I want to encourage you to know God's word while this might seem confusing, and it might, it might seem like there aren't a lot of details, the, the thing that just really gives me confidence that, that Daniel wrote this before this happened is he didn't give names and places. If this, had been written, if this had been written after these events occurred, if somebody really wanted to look spiritual, they would have given you the names of these people. Daniel saw these things happening. He didn't know who the names of these people were. Looking back, we can understand who these people were in history. And I believe as we study God's word, and some of you were thinking, what in the world are we doing reading these 46 verses right here in church on a Sunday morning? We were reading them because they are the word of God and I don't understand them any more than you do as I read through them, but if you'll take a template of human history and you'll lay it over this text of scripture, this text of scripture will make so much sense to you and your confidence in a sovereign God who is in control of all of history will go up and increase. And so I would encourage you, this morning but the second thing i would want us to do is to ask our ourselves what application can we bring from this text for us this morning and and so i want to i want to again uh just take the liberty of of uh of quoting from uh from from danny aiken um and just share this with you how does this text point to christ that's a question we should always ask how does this text point to christ and and he gives us several things we see Antiochus and the Antichrist, these, perhaps these two figures in, in one section, the second section, where, where he's got the crosshairs on the people of God, and then we see the Antichrist to his future, beginning in verse 36, and going to verse number 46, he compares Antiochus and the Antichrist to Jesus Christ. And I think it's, it's important that we look at it. Antiochus and the Antichrist were despised. Jesus Christ was desired. Antiochus and the Antichrist were deceitful. Jesus Christ was truthful. Antiochus and the Antichrist hate the holy covenant, chapter 11, verse 28. King Jesus loves God's holy covenant. Antiochus and the Antichrist desecrate the temple. King Jesus cleanses the temple. Antiochus and the Antichrist abolished sacrifices. King Jesus made sacrifice once and for all. Antiochus and the Antichrist persecute and murder God's people. Chapter 11, verses 32 to 33. Jesus Christ refines and purifies God's people. Antiochus and the Antichrist are willful. Jesus Christ is submissive. Antiochus and the Antichrist exalt themselves. Jesus Christ humbles himself. Antiochus and the Antichrist magnify themselves as God. Jesus Christ incarnated himself as God. Antiochus and the Antichrist blaspheme God. Jesus Christ glorifies God. Antiochus and the Antichrist worships the God of war. Jesus Christ is the God of peace. Antiochus and the Antichrist, their kingdom will come to an end. And the kingdom of Jesus Christ will endure forever. That is where we see Jesus Christ in, the te- in this text. And I think that is, uh, that is beautiful beautiful. And that is critical for us to draw out of this that we look at the kingdoms of this world. We look at the futility of the kingdoms of this world. And then we see a better king and a better kingdom. And I stand before you this morning as you live in the midst of all of the chaos of this world and all of the confusion and all of the violence and all of the hatred and all of the brokenness and all of the sadness and all of the sorrow. And I'm offering you a better king and a better kingdom this morning so how does the text point to christ and secondly what is the end of all things and i would ask you as we come to the end of daniel to go back to daniel chapter 2 daniel chapter 2 daniel chapter 2 and i want to begin reading in verse number 31 i want to show you the end of all things daniel chapter 2 verse 31 here's daniel interpreting nebuchadnezzar's dream and Daniel looks at all four of these kingdoms in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He said, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, the image mighty of exceeding brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was of fine gold. That's, the, that's Babylon. Its chest and arms of silver, that's Medo-Persia. In the middle and thighs of bronze, that's Greece. Its legs of iron and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay, that is Rome. As you looked, verse 34, a stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, all of these earthly kingdoms all together were broken in pieces and became like The chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That's Jesus. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom the power and the might and the glory... And into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell the children of men, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall and that's, again, Greece, Alexander the Great. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as a lion, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all. All of these, and you saw the feet and the toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And you saw the iron mixed with soft clay so that they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of the kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this? And the dream is certain and the interpretation is true. We worry about the missiles of, I don't know what they call the guy in North Korea. Um, We worry about Russia and their nuclear power and might. We worry about all of the nations around us and all of the problems. We worry about China and their technology. And I'm not saying we should be oblivious to those things. I'm not saying they won't have an impact on us. But here's what I'm telling you, that every kingdom of this world and whatever kingdom that you've established and put your name on, that kingdom is going to be crushed, and it's going to come to chaff. It's going to be like dust. It's going to be like a speck of lint, and there's coming a kingdom, and it's a great kingdom with a great king. And he rules a completely different way. He's not flexing his muscles. In fact, he is a compassionate king. He is a loving king. He is a king that would do anything to be in relationship and fellowship with you and with me. And he loves us so much that he left heaven and he came to earth and he robed himself in human flesh so that he as a man could die for men for their sin. Jesus came as the great king, the very son of God, and lived the life that we could not live. He fulfilled all righteousness. You can't be righteous enough to be acceptable to God. But Jesus came and fulfilled all righteousness. Jesus Christ came as the perfect sacrifice that all of the other sacrifices throughout history have pointed to, and Jesus Christ willingly gave his life. Jesus Christ is not taking the lives of his subjects, he's giving his life so that he can give those that are his life. That is a good king. This is a good kingdom. I've heard people say, man, I'll tell you what, I don't wanna I, I don't wanna I don't wanna go to heaven and submit to God. I wanna go down to I wanna go to Hades and and have a party. They're gonna I'm gonna serve ice water and cold beer in hell. Like you got a friend down there. <laughs> All of the kingdoms of this world are are throttled by his power and ideology. And here's a good king. That that loves us and welcomes us and brings us into the presence of the Father because he died for us and paid our sin debt. And so I would invite you to come into this kingdom. The third thing of application is this, and I'm I'm done, and I'll invite you to come and partake in communion. We live in a broken, fallen world, and it's, it's, it's messed up. And it is so far from what we were created for. But whatever it is that's frustrating you, whatever it is that's plaguing you, whatever it is that's dragging you down, whatever it is that just owns your brain and owns your eyes and owns your ears and quite frankly just owns your heart that is destroying your soul, whatever that is, you were created for so much more. We are so far from what we were created for. We were created for more. And apart from Jesus Christ, we will never realize that. And so I plead with you this morning, follow, follow him. As we come to the table this morning, um, we live in a world that, that, All you have to do is turn on the news or watch a good movie. (laughs) It's all about power. It's all about somebody whooping somebody, isn't it? That's the story of human history. Somebody getting whooped and somebody whooping somebody. That's what we're looking at here in the text. If you want to understand where whooped and whooping comes from, see me. And I will show you a highly intellectual dictionary where these words come from. That's the story of human history. And quite frankly, if you want power, there is power to be had. Every one of us in this room is more powerful than somebody. If you want power, there is power to be had in a myriad of ways. But the greatest power, the greatest power is the power of love. The greatest power is the power of love. The greatest power is the power of selflessness. The greatest power is the power of sacrifice. The greatest power is the power of death. Because death gives way to the greatest power, which is the power of resurrection. The Apostle Paul said I've, I, I, that I may know him, Philippians 3.10, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of of his suffering, all with the goal that I might be conformed to the image of Christ, that I might be like Christ. Folks, the, the power's not out here. The power's not in the world. The power's not at your at your work. The power's not something that you have to create from within yourself. The power that we need this morning is the power of love. And as you come to the table, I not only want you to think about his great love for you, I not only want you to think about his selflessness and his sacrifice and his death and his resurrection, but, but I, I want you to think about your own. I want you to think about your own. Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And the only way that we can walk out of here alive to Christ ready to manifest the power of his great love to those around us, is if we understand the power of our death to our self and the filling of his spirit. And so as we come to the table today and you grab that, that piece of bread and you dip it in that juice, don't let your mind be a million miles away from here. Don't let your mind be on where you're eating lunch or whether the rain has stopped. I would encourage you this morning to focus your attention on one who had all power and yet he gave it all up and died that we might have life. I'm going to pray and invite you to come this morning. Father, we ask you now to um, speak to our hearts as only you can. I pray that you would remind us with our wrinkling faces and aching bodies. That you would remind us in our exhaustion and in our disappointments and in our failed plans. I pray that you would remind us of the last time we tried to flex our muscle and use our power. I pray that you would remind us of those that we followed the kingdoms of this world that we've been a part of or the kingdoms of this world that we think if we were a part of that kingdom, life would be better. I pray you would just help us to stop this morning and realize those kingdoms one day are going to be smashed with a great rock. Those kingdoms are going to be crushed. And I pray, Holy Spirit of God, you would convict us. Convict us where we try to synthesize the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of our God, realizing that we can't do both. I pray, Father, for uh, those here this morning that have believed the lies, the lies of Satan, the lies of the kings and kingdoms of this world, the lies that say life is found here. I pray this morning that they would hear our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, saying, come unto me, all ye that labor. All you that are heavy laden, I've got rest for you. I promise you it's here. And I pray we would run there this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.